God's doing in your life? Are you? You know, as you think about what you're thankful and you're grateful for, and you lift him up today, I want to uh, introduce our senior pastor. His name's Scott Kegel. Some of you are new, but I am thankful for him. I, I'm just telling you, I was overwhelmed in the communion that we are so blessed to have this family with us that I get to be a part with you. To sit under his teaching every week. We pray for our kids. We pray for you. I want to pray for him as he opens God's word. And we're going to put you right in the middle. Like we've done before. And we're going to just surround you as he leads us in prayer. He had no idea I was doing this, just so you know. So, come on. We're going to pray for him as he opens God's word today to us. We love you, Pastor Scott. And thank you for your ministry with us. Heavenly Father. As God opens the word to us today, we're grateful that he's a part of our family at ABF. May you empower him with this Holy Spirit of God that you've given us. And that you would bless him, use him, and mightily um, come upon him now as he teaches us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Wow, didn't see that coming. That was uh, fun. I love impromptu stuff like that. I was blessed. Thank you guys very much. We've really uh, enjoyed being here and being a, a part of this community and just grateful for you as well. Well, I wanted to see if you could help me finish this statement. Experience is the best teacher. That's right. Experience is the best teacher. There's something about uh, in our lives that we experience things and it, whether it's good or bad, we want to take those experiences. And one of the things I've found in my own life having kids is you want to take the things that you've learned from the hard mistakes and you want to pass those on to the next generation that you're like, don't do this because it ends really bad. Anybody else had that experience where you're, you're wanting to pass that things on? I, I found myself even at the beach lately uh, on our days off on Saturday. We were there at Zuma Beach and just goofing around a little bit. And uh, it's kind of fun. We're doing a community beach days in the summer on Wednesdays, I believe. Is that right? So looking forward to that. Um, but anyway, the point, the point I was bringing up was I found myself passing on things that I've experienced at the beach over the years that I pass on to my kids. What are, what are some of those things that come to mind? How about urchins? Anybody learned a, a hard lesson with an urchin, having gotten one of those in your foot? I remember passing that on to my kids like, don't step on those. They're really, really bad. Or, or how about jellyfish? Jellyfish, you want to pass on kids? I've been stung by a Portuguese man of war. Anybody know what that is? Went across my leg. It was not fun. Jellyfish, you avoid those. Yesterday, when we were in the water, I was I had my son who was on the boogie board, and he was going up a wave, and, and I realized I hadn't taught him an important lesson. When a big wave is about to break, you don't try to go over it with a board or else what happens to you? Flat on your back. And that's exactly what happened to him. I was a little late on that lesson. And on, on, on the beach, what are some lessons that we land? What, what do you tell your kids about shaking their towel in the middle of like people all around you? You're like, don't do that. It ends up in people's eyes, right? And so the how about suntan lotion? Getting it close to the eyes? That's miserable with kids. All these lessons that we gather just from experience that we're like, we don't want you to go through what I had to go through, right? And so what I believe, as I've been studying this book of James, 
is I really think, as I've spent the last couple months kind of really investing in it, that it, this, so much of this is coming from James's life. So much of this is coming from him saying, you've got to learn from me. You've got to learn from my experience. You see, in the Gospels, at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you don't really get this picture of James being this stellar, rock-solid, sold-out. There's not a whole lot of talk about him having this undying, unwavering commitment to his brother. But, at the beginning of the book of James, what does he refer to himself as? Anybody remember that? As a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, something had changed in the life of James where he went from kind of in to fully in. Going from kind of on the fence and kind of teetering. And so what I believe as we're kind of going more and more through this book, you see he lists test after test after test of, hey, let's make sure that you're truly in. That you've fully given yourself to this. That you're not just kind of partially teetering on this. That you're fully in and following Christ. And so he's given, we've seen week after week, a list of, of item after item to test yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. And just like, just like us with our kids or with other people that we love, we want to pass on from our experience because we don't want them to do what we've done and, and then fail miserably. And so most likely in this, this text here today, it's him speaking probably to his old self. Probably to his old self. Learn from my mistakes. So we're going to be in, in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 4 in James. If you have your Bibles with you, let's grab those. If not, there's one in the pew in front of you. But what this is this morning is it's actually as he's going through all these different tests and examples of things to kind of assess your heart in, he's finally getting to the place where he takes a little bit of a pause. He takes a little bit of a pause and says, Hey, if you've been going through this self-inventory and you've found yourself lacking or falling short, I want to give you the gift of a pause. A slowdown to kind of reassess and then get your heart in the right place. So my hope and prayer this morning as we're working through this, this text is that we have the same thing happen to us as a church. That we get the gift of a pause. A pause to slow down and assess where are we at with Christ. Are we fully in? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much for the gift of this book and the gift of James' experience, a brother of Jesus, that he got to, from his life, be able to point things out to us as believers a couple thousand years later to say, make sure that you're truly in the faith. Make sure that you've fully dove in. And I pray that this morning that the pause that's given in the text is a pause that's good for each and every one of us in this room. We commit this time to you and ask that you speak through your word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alright, verse 7 of chapter 4, so James 4, 7, says this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let's pause there. Again, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In the previous verses just before this, if you remember from last week, we saw that God, what, opposes the proud. We saw that God opposes the proud. And what, what is the likelihood of success uh, for someone that God is opposing? 
Zero. So, so really, this is like a natural thing that if God is opposing you, then probably the wise time to pull out the white flag is now. Like if you're falling to the proud camp, God is opposing you and he's saying you're going to fail. So therefore, because of that, the word therefore, submit yourself therefore to God. And this, this idea of submit, the word submit means to align oneself under the authority of another. To align oneself under the authority of another. You must realize that if we've embraced Jesus Christ at, truly as Lord, if we've embraced his forgiveness of our sins, there's also that Lord peace where we're submitting to his authority in our life. It's funny how our, our natural tendency is to oppose authority in our life. Anybody else notice that bent that we have when there's someone that's placed above us? I had my first uh, interaction with the Los Angeles Police Department uh, in the last week. Uh, and so I'll tell you about that experience. So I'm driving down the 101. And, uh, and, and so this is confession time. We're all family. We established that, right? And, and, and I see the, that, that miserable, have that, that miserable experience, look in the rearview uh, lights and, and what's behind you. Anybody else been there? Lights flashing. I get introduced to a new idea I've never heard of. A fix-it ticket. So the fix-it ticket had to do with a couple things on my car, one being front-tinted uh, windows. And so they pull me over and they tell me I need to fix that. I didn't have a front license plate. I'm a, I'm a regular felon. And, uh, and, and, so, and so he's going through these different things. And as I'm sitting there, as I'm waiting, we pulled off to the side of the, uh, off of the, the highway, and we're out the, at this exit. And in my mind, as he, he had already told me the things I needed to get fixed on my, on my car, I'm watching every car, car pulled down like they've got tints they don't have a front plate they don't have you know what I mean you know, like our tendency and then I found myself doing this and I'm like how what's going on like what's going on internally that I have such an issue with authority I was a lawbreaker I was guilty and, and, and so I'm gonna get those those fixed here eventually in the next period of time uh, and, and, and so, so th this idea of, of authority, there's something against us, within us, that has this bent against pushing back against authority. But here in our, our text is saying, hey, this, this, this whole deal, if you've been uh, opposing God, if you fall into this proud game, it has to start with a, a, a submission. It has to start with a putting yourself under the leadership of God Almighty. Then he says this, he says, a part of that, these two are linked, submit yourself there to, therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. I think it's pretty cool that this idea that the invitation to submit to the new Lord and resist the old Lord. MacArthur says this, active allegiance to God involves sustained resistance to the devil. I'll say that again. Active allegiance to God involves sustained resistance to the devil. You see, when, when we're actually making God the Lord and leader of our life, that also involves taking the old Lord off of the throne. He has to come down in order to elevate the other one. You see, the, the idea here is resist. The Greek word is antithetomy. I can't pronounce that very good because it's a weird lettering. But, but the idea of resist to stand against. There's no need, I think some of us get confused, that there's really no need for us to defeat the devil because why? It's already defeated. So what are, what are we called to do? We're just told to resist. 
We're told to resist the devil. And it's fantastic here because it's basically a directive followed with a promise. Because when we resist the devil, what does it say that he does? He flees. He's out of there. He's, he's a messenger. That's what an angel does. He, once he's delivered a message and you're like, no thanks, he's like, I'm stuck. I'm just a messenger. Like, well, what, what does he do there? And so, and so the, the, the thing that we do, it, what, what I've realized is so many of us forget that whole resist piece. We just have our area of sin or struggle that we go straight to. And as soon as the, the devil tempts us, we're like, oh man. I'm defeated. I'm falling right back into that because there's no resist element in our lives if we're honest with ourselves. Those of us stuck in some kind of a habitual sin where if we're really honest in our heart of hearts, there's not a whole lot of resist. There's not a lot of resist going on. You see, the whole idea of the way Satan works is that his, his temptation is that he appeals to our own fleshly desires. Our own fleshly desires. And so what I've realized in my life is that when my cup is full, when, when, I have, when I'm in the right place walking with the Lord, when I'm filled up, He's got nothing to dangle in front of me, right? The, I think one of the best ways that we can resist the devil is to have a full cup. When we're spiritually in the right place, when we're walking with the Lord in, 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 in intimacy with Him, all of a sudden Satan has no appeal to us because there's nothing for him to draw on. And so it says here in the text to resist the devil and he will flee from us. He can't lead a believer into sin without consent of the believer's will. Let's continue in the text. What does he say next? So resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I like the concept of the draw near here. It says the idea that they were to take initiative and then God will respond. Psalms 145, 18 says the Lord is near to all who call upon him. I think some of us get this a little bit inverted. We think we get to get into this line of thinking of like, man, God just seems so far from me, man. I just, I don't, I don't sense his presence. I don't feel like he's around me. I don't, I don't feel like he's near. But here we're getting that confused. We're the ones that are take, are to take initiative to, towards him. We're the ones that are to pursue that relationship. We're the ones that are to set aside and have some intentionality in developing and fostering that relationship. We're to draw near to God. And then again, a promise attached to that. We draw near to Him and then what happens? He draws near to us. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself upon us. He makes himself very attractive where we're drawn to Him, but He doesn't force Himself upon us. I remember in the early years of uh, dating Adrian, or actually the early uh, weeks of dating Adrian, totally, I don't know if you guys remember the dating season of your life where you're kind of wrestling through, I think she's interested, but I'm not quite sure. You guys remember that teetering time where you're like, man, we're, we're hanging out, we're spending a lot of time together, we're really meshing, but, but I don't know what she's thinking. Do you guys remember that, ladies here? You remember that? Where you're like, what is he thinking? Why won't he just say what his intention? are. And, uh, and, and so I, I, rem I remember one, uh, one evening, uh, it was actually on uh, 
uh, it was actually on Valentine's Day. This is when we actually started dating. We had uh, we were together. We were talking, and I was finally like I was I had gotten to the point where I'm like I gotta find out. Like it's driving me crazy. I got to figure out if she's digging me as much as I'm digging her. And, and so so I did something smooth, guys. You can take notes on this. So so uh, just kidding. This wasn't very smooth. Uh, so so I said to her, I said I said Adrian, do you remember back in uh, junior high uh, when you used to pass a note and it had two boxes in it and it used to say if you'd if you if you would date me or, or or be my boyfriend or not be or girlfriend uh or, or not be my girlfriend and uh you check one of the boxes I said if I were to pass you a note right now which box would you check and so well, guys what do you think ladies huh huh and uh well clearly it worked um but uh but but I remember there there was that point of drawing close. There was that point of, of showing my intent like where I actually spelled it out. And, and that's what I believe the, the text as we're looking in here is saying. Is it saying that, man, we're to draw near to Him. He's, he's waiting for us. He's waiting for us to draw near. And then what is the promise? If we do, He's going to respond by drawing near to us. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't pursue us. He definitely pursues us. If you think back to when you first came to Christ, how irresistible he made himself, you were just like, I can hardly even not bend my knees. And, that, and that's how Christ works. That's how God works. I, I, I can't help but come to him. But, but it still takes the, the, the response on our behalf to draw near. I realize in my life that's a daily ongoing call. Then it goes on in the text, it describes the next area. So we're to draw near, but then he says this, To cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The idea of cleansing hands stems from the ceremonial expectations for a Jewish priest at the time that they had to go through a process before they were offering sacrifices that they had to have their hands cleansed. But I think it's interesting here because who is he actually talking to? I think the natural inclination would be like, oh, he's just talking to the believer. But you'll see as you dig into scripture that nowhere else in all of the Bible is a believer described as a sinner. A believer is not described as a sinner. So in the text here, when he's talking, he's talking to the person that's going through the, these tests and going through these different opportunities to assess whether they're in the faith and maybe have come to the point and realized, I'm not in. I'm not in. I've never had the point where I've drawn close. I've never had the point where I've submit, submitted. I've never had the point where I've humbled myself before him. And so this is an invitation. He also describes them as double-minded. The, the, the present-day equivalent would be a hypocrite. Those that are claiming one thing, but living another. Those that are claiming one thing, but living the exact opposite. So this is an invitation that if you've been going through this series with us, if you've kind of been assessing, man, am I genuinely in the faith? Have I, have I turned from my sins? Have I embraced Jesus' death as payment and for, as seen Him as a forgiver in my life? If I haven't done that, here's the invitation. He's saying, be cleansed. 
Be cleansed. Be washed by what? What did we just celebrate here this morning? The, the, the blood and the, the, sac, the, the, the body that was broken on our behalf? Like that's the invitation. That's the invitation for being cleansed. If you've never had that time and place in your life where you've bent your knee and been, come before the cross and said, God, forgive me. I have to be cleansed. I can't, I, I can't do this on my, my own. I can't solve it. I can't fix it. If there's never been that place, this is the pause in the book of James where he gives opportunity for that. He gets an invitation. It's a, 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 a pause for us and a chance for us to, to assess, man, if I haven't done that, that needs to happen. And I, as a pastor here at the church, I want to plead with a person that's sitting in this room that's never bent their knee and never embraced Jesus' death as forgiveness for their sins. I want to plead with you to get that straight. To get that straight, honestly here, like that, that breaks my heart to think that there might be somebody in this room that's never done that. That's never come to the place in their life where they've, that, where they've made that decision to embrace him. You recognize we're eternal beings. 10,000 years from now, we're going to be just as aware as we are in this moment. Do you realize that? We're going to be, we're going to be still exist and we're going to either have an eternity with God in his presence or separated from him. Scripture describes an eternal torment. That's not, that's not a little deal. This is big stakes. And that's why it's so important that he's saying here is like, get this right. He's not trying to mince words and, and sugarcoat it. He's calling you sinners and, and double minded. He's saying, get it right, guys. This is critical. This is life and death. So there's the pause. Where are we at with that for us here in the room? Have we bent our knee? He goes on in verse 9 to point this out a little bit further. He says, I label this stop laughing. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Let's pause there. Last night when I was sitting and just kind of going through my notes, kind of getting my mind straight around this morning's text. And it was sitting by our upstairs. We have an upstairs window. We're in a town, uh, townhome community right off of Canwood here in Agora. And I had the window open. And I heard the, the neighbors. So the, the neighbors next to us had some kind of a shindig or party going on. And it's, it's funny. I think they should put warning on alcohol about, about volume going up because there, there always seems to be that issue in response to drinking alcohol. And so the, the volume was very high on everything that they were saying and everything. So I'm just kind of listening in there. There's a little bit of uh, karaoke mixed in there, some singing, some, uh, some partying. I mean, they were having a, they were having a good old time. Like it was, and I, and I was, just as I was going through this text, I was like, and maybe we need to stop laughing a little bit. Maybe we need to recognize the, the seriousness of this life. The world around us has this bent towards using laughter, where it says they're using laughter as the great escape, right? People are just kind of joking their way through this life. And what the text is pointing us to is, man, this is serious business. It says, let the laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's not saying that God's like the killjoy, but he's saying, let's slow down enough in our hedonistic pursuits to actually pause and reflect on the severity of what's at stake here. This is, this is serious business. And that's what he's pointing out. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Wow. 
Pretty intense. Be wretched. I thought, I thought another word, some of your, your translations might see the word miserable. This involves being broken and fe- feeling terrible over our sin. The mourn. The idea of the, uh, the experiencing deep grief as if the loss of someone that we care about. To mourn. And then the word weep. So that's, that's the outward expression of this. When you're weeping, it's actually coming out in the things that you're saying. I thought it was interesting. I was reading one commentary that says, In Bible times, they would hire professional mourners for a funeral to make sure that everyone knew how serious the loss was. Isn't that crazy? So they'd actually hire people that, that were just weepers. You, can you imagine asking somebody, what do you do? You know, I'm, I'm a weeper, you know? Like, uh, not, not the grim, but uh, like, the, like I, I'm a weeper. I'm, I'm the one that, that's, that comes to a funeral and elevates so that people realize how great of a loss it is. I think that's the big picture here is he's wanting to make sure that they got it. That they understood that this is, this is serious stuff. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Where are we at with our sin? Where are we at with our sin? Does it still break our hearts? This is a, a, a challenge to both the believer and the non-believer. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. That's why there's the charge towards that. It's saying, man, you have, to, you have to be broken about your sin before you can move to repentance. And that's what he's pointing out here. The, the word that, he, that it says in response in verse 10, it says, humble yourself. The Greek word tapino, which means to make yourself low. Make yourself low. Love one author says that they, they that know God will be humbled, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. They that know God will be humbled, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. The idea that, that when we really recognize the, the, the depravity of our sinfulness apart from Christ, that should bring us to a place of humility, bringing us to a, a, a bent knee. And so I, I just look at the world around us, and I see so many people that I'm just like, man, I just wish that God would just bend their knee, that they'd humble themselves and come before him. And then look at the promise there. When we do that, what does it say happens? Again, this text is so full of commands, but also promises attached to them. When he humbles ourselves, what happens? Then God does what? He what? Exalts. This is audience participation time. He, he exalts those who humble themselves. That This idea that humbling, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. You see, when we get ourselves low, it's kind of the the irony of how God works. When we get ourselves as low as we possibly can before us, when we recognize our depravity, what does God do? He lifts us up. He lifts us up. Isn't that such a better idea than us trying to lift our own selves up, right? And and so in the text there, he's pointing that out. And when God does the exalting, he is lavish. He is lavish. When we finally do humble ourselves before the Lord, God can do some amazing things in our lives. I was reading through some different passages this week that describe what this lavish exaltation looks like. One that jumped out to me, Ephesians 1, 3 through 7, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. All that in summary, we have it good when we bend our knee. When we finally bend our knee, he elevates us. Look look what the text says. It was every spiritual blessing, seeing us as holy and blameless, adopted as sons, redeemed by his blood, forgiven. Our trespasses no longer held against us. How awesome is that? That that should be that should get us excited. That should that should move us to maybe an amen. Are we excited about that? That's the idea. That, that he points out here. When we humble ourselves, then he does the lifting up. But here's the point that he makes as he concludes the text. Is he says, if we've come from such a place as that, a place where we're broken and just bent over our sin, where we feel sick about the things that we've done, who are we? He leaves us, he moves from this, this, caution, this, this pause, he moves to a caution. Who are we then? To judge. Who are we then to judge? The idea of God being a judge and doing the exalting leads us to this point. That man, we can't play judge. Take a look at verse 11. If we've bent our knee and we've been lifted by him alone, how can we play judge against others? Verse 11 says this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law And judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So he moves from from talking to the, the, the unbeliever here. And now he's coming back to the believer. Back to saying, who are you to judge who? Your brothers. Three times in that verse there, he refers to them as brothers, only referring to them as believers. So this, the, the, he's saying, who are you that, that makes you think you can play this role? This is treason against the sovereign lawgiver and judge of the universe. Who are you to think you can elevate yourself to the one that plays judge over other people? And he covers all of his bases there. He says the, 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 he says the one who speaks against a brother... Or judges. There's two kind of camps to this. The, the outward expression of it, where we actually talk poorly about someone, that we speak negatively about somebody. I, I know that's an ongoing thing that you have to check yourself. I was even thinking of myself this week. I, I made references, confession. I, I referred to somebody. I said, yeah, they seem pretty happy with themselves. And I was like, you know, that's a jerk thing to say about somebody. You know, like, who am I to judge that person? I don't know what's going on in their heart. Like, I don't know what's going on in their mind, where they're, 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 where they're, they're from. It's not my role to play judge. So there's the verbal piece that we're called to check ourselves on, speaking poorly about other people. How are we doing on that? Maybe that's uh, why somebody needed to show up here this morning, speaking. But then how about the other part? Some of us are just like, I don't really say things about people. I just think about it. That's the, that's the judge, Pete. So I, I, maybe you don't speak. Maybe it's the internal stuff, right? Or it's kind of ugly. If you're, if you're honest with yourself, the assessing that you do about somebody, the assessing you do about whoever, like there, there's, some, there's some 
ugliness that goes on behind the scenes in our, in our minds. So it's not just talking about the eternal, uh, the external, but also the plain judge in your mind. We not only need to keep our lips sealed, but our thoughts right as well. Otherwise, what are we doing? We're elevating ourselves to God-like status. That's what he's saying. There's only one lawgiver. What happened back with Adam and Eve? What was the, the uh, enticing idea? That they got to determine what was going to be right and wrong, what was good and evil. That was the appeal, that they would be like God. That's still the danger here. That when we play, ju- when we play judge, what are we doing? We're becoming like God. We're elevating ourselves to that sovereign status of like, I'm, I'm playing judge. He's saying two things. He's saying, don't do that with your brothers. Don't do that with your brothers. Uh, he, re- he refers three times to the word brothers, recognizing that they're one and the same in Christ. That who are you that's been saved from this sin that you're just mourning and weeping and wailing over to be then judging other people? That's not right. That's not what we're called to. So one, we don't have to judge other believers. But two, we don't have to judge non-believers because they're already guilty. You know what I mean? Like they, they don't need it. So really at no point do we get to put on the nice black robe and swing the, uh, what's that thing called? That's right, gavel. I had to ask that earlier this week. Uh, the gavel, neither way do we get to do that. Who are we to judge? Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbors? But who are you? The idea of who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to judge other people? You know? I'm so often I'm telling my kids... Just they, they come and they tattle on the, the other one and, and, and do that whole thing. And I'm like, son or daughter, you just have to worry about you. Just worry about your actions. But how much do we as adults need that same challenge? That you don't have to play judge over other people. Like that, that's not the role that you've been given. You just have to worry about you and your actions before the Lord. You have to give an account before him for yourself. I love the, the story of the... The, the crowd that came before Jesus and they, they brought this woman that had been caught in adultery. Uh, and you guys remember the, the details of this. They all have their stones. They're, they're ready to, to start whipping at her. And, and what, what did Jesus say to the, the, the crowd there? Anybody remember that? Let he who has, is without sin do what? Cast the first stone. Same idea. We as believers, we need to drop the rocks. We need to drop the rocks. We need to, we need to stop playing judge. Stop playing jury in people's lives. That's not our role. Otherwise, we're elevating ourselves to a godlike status. Where are we at with that this week? What would need to change? What rock needs to drop in your life? Who are you holding something over in your, in your world? Is it somebody in uh, your family? Is it somebody that you work with? Like, who are you judging right now? I had to do some assessing of that this week. There's, there's some work that the Holy Spirit needed to do in, in my life and continues to need to do. Where are we at with that? So this text this morning gives us two gifts. It gives two things. It gives us a pause. The first thing, what we described. A pause where we actually slow down and we check to see, man, have I submitted to his authority? Have I, am I pursuing an intimate relationship with him? Am I taking steps towards him? Can I honestly say that I'm drawing near to him in my week? Am I moving towards relationship? 
Am I coming clean? That's a, that's a, a challenge, a pause for both the believer and non-believer, if you don't realize that. This whole coming clean. I think we've forgotten the whole idea of repentance in the life of a believer. That should be an elevated thing. Just making sure that there's nothing in between us and our relationship with God. So a pause for that, to stop laughing, really see our sin the way that God sees our sin. But then here the last thing. So you've got the pause and you've got the caution. The caution is, don't slip into the status of playing judge. Like you're not, that, that's not what, you're, you're not qualified. You're not innocent. You're not the one that can see people's hearts. You're not qualified for that. Let's stop playing judge. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the gift of this, this text here this morning. And I thank you for both pieces of it. The pause where we actually reflect, where, where James, as I'm imagining, is coming to the place in his life where he's saying, don't make the mistake that I did and not fully sell out. God, I just pray for anyone in this room that's never come to that point, that's never bent their knee, that is, has decided, I'm going to do it my way, that's maybe even just laughing their way through their existence. God, I pray that this pause would be a gift that's needed in their life where they'd come to you and recognize their desperate need for your forgiveness because of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. God, I thank you too for this word of caution would, would bring in people's minds that if we've been in the, the role of, of playing judge, God, that we have let that go, that we'd make the choice to allow you, God, there's so much freedom in that to not play judge, to take off that robe. God, I just pray that you do a work in each one of us. We're dependent on you and grateful for your forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, name. amen. 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 His love never gives up. Is that encouragement today? Heavenly Father, we ask that in the midst of all that we go about, that we would never forget that you've not given up on us. Your love never gives up. And in this pause of this passage, Lord, we do take a hard look at our own lives today. And we ask, yes, Lord, you will be the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.